Good morning. Continue in your Bibles to Jude. And once you have found it, please stand with me as we once again honor the reading of God's Word. Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen? Please be seated. The glory of this passage this morning is really almost more than one can bear Uh, the sheer beauty of the proclamation of our God in all his power and glory and majesty and dominion both now and forever is for the Christian a message that we can, uh, that we proclaim with, with Isaiah when he says, I'm undone. And, and that is much of what we see this morning. There's not, there's not big enough, um, there's not deep enough, there are not enough synonyms and, and, and length and breadth of the English language this morning to really proclaim this, these two verses uh, as richly as they deserve to be proclaimed. But I would uh, trust and pray and believe and hope and with confidence know that the Holy Spirit is the one that does the conveying of the message. I'm simply the one who's who he is going to use. And in some, light, in some ways, as we see in this morning's passage, there are some passages that you can see that much more clearly and I would trust this morning and uh, know that the Holy Spirit uh, will do that work of taking this great word and imprinting it upon our hearts this morning. So let's go to him once again and, and pray together and ask him to do just that. Lord, we see glory in this passage. We, we see you proclaimed as, as few other passages in Scripture proclaim you. The truth that is, that is in these two verses, Father, are that which should arrest us and, and, and is the, the total encapsulation of our entire lives, both here and forevermore one day. So I pray, Father, that you would use, that you would... Use me, Lord. I'm an unclean vessel, Father, but use me. And use me to proclaim the truth and the power of the Spirit Spirit this morning. Father, would you take this word and would you indelibly place it upon our hearts? Would you imprint it? Would you emboss it upon our hearts this morning that we are unable to forget the majesty and glory and dominion and power that is our God? In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. We find ourselves at the end of the book of Jude and as the Apostle Paul does in many of his writings, the book of Jude closes with a doxology, caps all that he has written and sought to communicate to the reader with a message of glory, with a message of, of praise. 
When we began our study of the book of Jude, I stated the entire theme of the book to be be this. And let me remind you that the majesty and glory of God and the work of salvation through Christ should both delight us and compel us to contend for the true faith. And we noted how the first two verses of Jude and the last two verses of Jude really bookend all that is in the middle of Jude. If you think of bookends on a shelf, they, they uh, constrain that which is in the middle. They enwrap that which is in the middle. They set apart these particular books on the shelf. And these bookends that we see in Jude, verses 1 and 2, and today, verse 24 and 25, really set apart the message in the book of Jude in its context. And also it displays for us why that message is so very important. Let me recap quickly this book. Jude has exhorted us to contend for the faith. We saw that in verse 3 and verse 4. To take the faith that has been given to us freely and to guard it, to guard the good deposit that has been entrusted unto us, to contend for it, to seek to keep the faith pure in how we communicate the word and how we communicate the, the word to the world. He's warned us. He's warned us of those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. You see that in verses in verse 4. He's warned us to beware of those who claim Christ but proclaim or teach a false Christ. He's given us characteristics to look for to determine false teachers from those that are true. And as we saw last week, uh, Pastor Paul there showing us how we might not be those who proclaim a false Christ, but namely we are to build ourselves up first in the holy faith through prayer and looking to the love of God and waiting, longingly waiting for the coming of Christ and in that longing and in that waiting being about the work of mercy toward others. The bookends really proclaim the greatness of of God. And in between the bookends of the greatness of God, verses 1 and 2 and 24 and 25 being the bookends, Jude has rebuked and warned and characterized those who walk in disobedience to the scripture. But if you were to take the bookends away, 1 and 2, 24 and 25, you to take them away or, or just have verses 1 and 2 and then leave off 24 and 25, the book of Jude would be incomplete in its message. Because he's really taken much time to exhort the body to beware and to be cautious and what to watch for and given us exhortation of what we are to do in that watching and, be, and, and, and being aware of what is happening around us. So if he simply stops at the rebuke, of false teachers and never turns to the praise of God in 24 and 25, he leaves us as believers in a very hopeless state. We're left to our own wits. We're left to our own energy. We're left to our own plans. We're left to our own devices to keep from living a life in a way that would warrant the rebuke. Namely, don't go into this apostasy. Don't fall away from the true faith. But when Jude turns and prays to God, he turns us as readers once again toward the one who will do the work through us. 
And that's why he has to, that's why this 24 and 25 has to be there. It's because of this God that he denounces the sin of men and therefore he must declare the glory of God to show afresh the gravity of this sin. If there's no glory, if there's no greatness of this God, then what is sin? But when you put that in the face, and when you put that in, in the shadow, when you put that up against the glory and greatness of God, then that sin becomes deep. And there's a gravity to it. And there's, there's a bite to that warning and that rebuke. And what a, a message of praise is this passage in 24 and 25. The hope in which he declares the greatness and glory of God stands in stark contrast to the weighty and the dark passages, uh, the dark message he just spent time communicating to the church. To beware and to watch. His final message is one meant to instill confidence and hope in the reader in the face of opposition to the faith. And that's the message to us this morning that Jude has in 24 and 25, that we might have great confidence and hope in the face of opposition to our faith. That we would not be left discouraged or despairing at the thought of all the opposition around us or even the opposition within us. But we would be left in awe of God who is able above all others, who is able as no one else has ever been able to keep us and make us stand rather than let us fall. Look with me at verses 24 and 25. We're going to divide uh, these two verses into really three sections this morning. The closing statement of the book, 24 and 25, Jude, as the writer, is desiring to communicate uh, this truth, and I'm going to read it, and then we will break it down. And the theme of 24 and 25, I believe, is the able keeping grace of God by the greatness of God, will present us before the throne with great joy. Let me repeat. The able-keeping grace of God, by the greatness of God, will present us before the throne with great joy. Looking first at the able-keeping grace of God in verse 24. It is really, as we as Christians reflect upon our Christian life, it is really astonishing It is mind-blowing. There is no human reasoning as to why we have not fallen from the faith. There really is none. Every year over the past eight years, on September 19th, I'm reminded of the frailty of life because on that day, eight years ago, I was in the middle of the Guadalupe River, everything in my power seeking to rescue one of my younger brothers who was drowning Moments away from that water completely shutting off his life. And if it was not for the grace of God, that water would have overcome him and he would not be with us. But God intervened. And if it was not for the able keeping grace of God, each one of us would not have the testimony of life in Christ. The the cares of the world, the choking weeds of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the, the rushing waters of, uh, of sin would have long ago succumbed, brought us and, and succumbed us to death. But he's held us and they haven't overcome us because he's able. He is able. 
He is able to keep us. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. 2 Timothy 4.18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And that ability that he has that is above all other is channeled into one thing and that is his glory and his glory alone. And we rejoice this morning that that he gains indescribable glory in keeping us in the faith. Charles Spurgeon, how many times do we have to exclaim with the psalmist, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. If we were strong, sure-footed mountaineers, this would not matter so much. But in ourselves, how weak we are. On the best roads, we soon falter. In the smoothest paths, we quickly stumble. These feeble knees of ours can scarcely support our tottering weight. A feather may divert us and a pebble can wound us. We are mere children. Listen, we are mere children taking our first trembling steps in the walk of faith. Our Heavenly Father holds us by the arms or we would soon be down. That word keep Now to him is able to keep, it's an active verb. He keeps us continually. He is never not guarding us. Your Bible might say, stumbling, keep you from stumbling. He's keeping us from stumbling. He's keeping us from falling. But what does that mean to keep us from stumbling or falling? Are falling. We believe in the the keeping power of God for those that are his. Meaning, we believe that if God saves, he holds those he saves to the end. And we believe that according to John six thirty five to 39. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? So what we say is that those who are saved will never apostatize But we will not apostatize because he in his saving, he does a keeping. So he keeps us from stumbling into a rejection of the faith, those that are his. But we can stumble in other ways, can't we? We can stumble, though we cannot stumble out of salvation and incur the wrath of God in eternal fire, we can stumble into doctrinal error. We can stumble into sin. But his keeping power, that keeping power of his grace is available in those areas as well. And I want you to notice something. God has ordained that much of that keeping power, much of that keeping grace, 
Much of that guarding work that he does is done through relationship. Our relationship to him. That's why the analogy of, uh, of, of God uh, as father and we as children is so profound. And as much as I would like to think that I am mature enough in my faith to be able to walk as mature, mature adults in the faith, we all have our moments when we're more like a little toddler learning how to walk and he reaches up or she reaches up her hand to grab the hand of the father. But it's not she that holds the father's hand. It's the father that holds that child's hand. And that's exactly what happens here to us. Isaiah 41.13 For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Isaiah, I mean, Psalm 18.35 You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. See, that keeping power is to be worked out in close relationship. And that's why we so often point to the means of grace, the reading of Scripture and the memorization of Scripture and the meditation of Scripture and the fellowship with the saints and communion and baptism and thanksgiving and praise and singing as all the advantages, all the means of grace that He has given us to keep us. And the more we exercise those means of grace, the more that we see the keeping power of God's grace in our lives. The more you see it, the more you feel it. The more we fully see his love manifested to us. 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ constraineth us. That keeping power constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we are all dead. We are so often uh, tempted to run from sin. And what I don't mean is that we're tempted to run from temptation. That is a good thing. As Joseph ran from temptation, we are to run from temptation. But we're so often tempted to run from our sin, that sin that so easily besets, we, we want to ignore it or we want to drown it uh, in something else. So we run and try to take the pain of that sin and, and minimize it in other ways outside of Christ. We, we seek to distract ourselves or we put into our lives man-made regulations, trying desperately to get away from the sin when what we often need to do is turn and face the sin equipped by the keeping and able power of God, clad with the armor of God and put to death the, thin, the sin that so easily besets. To turn and face it in the power of God alone. Yes, we run from temptation, but we can't always run. And there's times when that sin that so easily besets, we have to turn and trust that keeping and able power of God to help us in the fight against sin. But notice in your Bible, it's not now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He doesn't just do that. He could stop there, really. There's no more need for any more grace. It's beyond what we can possibly understand. But no, he not only keeps you from stumbling, he presents you blameless with great joy. And notice the three-tiered grace there. Keep you from stumbling, blameless, in his presence, with great joy. 
one undeserving layer of grace upon another because he alone is able. It's not enough that he just keeps you from stumbling into sin by his means of grace. It's not enough that he just keeps you from stumbling out of salvation. He continues his active role in our lives by keeping us in order that he might present us before his throne with our great joy. Every scripture says that that should not be the case and won't be the case if but for Christ. But with Christ, we can then stand in his presence with great joy. Every other time in scripture, no one can see the, be in the presence of God and not be moved to such a point that they cannot remain there. Mark Przlowski talked about that with Moses this morning. But one day, we will be presented before him, blameless and able to look him full in the face and have great joy, rather than shrink away in terror. I love the NASB translation here in 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand. In the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. John Calvin, when believers shall be presented faultless, it will be with exceeding joy. At last now our faults fill us with fears and doubts and sorrows. But be of good cheer, if we be sincere, we shall be, our dear Redeemer has undertaken for it. We shall be presented presented faultless. Listen, what he says. Where there is no sin, there will be no sorrow. Where there is the perfection of holiness, there will be the perfection of joy. 1 Peter 1, 8-9 Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And he makes us blameless by the blood of Christ. He makes us faultless by the cleansing blood of Christ. And by that cleansing blood, he declares us faultless, blameless, perfect. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Hebrews 9.14 How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God Christ, being without blemish, offered to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We are blameless that day. As the, as the nails were pounded in to the flesh of Christ through that cross, our sin was pounded with those nails to that cross, and we are declared by that cross blameless. That is glory. Romans 7, 24 and 25, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We 
we look to that cross and we see there that our sin met its death on the day Christ met his death. Free. We're free. We're free from the bondage of sin. We're free from the wrath to come. We're free from the declaration of guilt and instead rejoice in the declaration of innocent, blameless, faultless. That's us now. Colossians 1, 22 and 28. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. In verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. But that doesn't make any sense. How can this be when I see my sin every day? When I struggle against sin every day, when my pride rears its head every day, why is that truth still there when my sin seems so rampant? When I do that which I know dishonors the Lord, and and this is the reason, it's because that work of Christ once and for all, no matter what sin has or will ever be committed in your life, that work of Christ has secured the final of judgment. It's done. It's a done deal. There is, there is nothing else that any one of us could ever add to the table for God to say, no, I must pull back that final judgment placed upon Christ. No, it's complete. There's no more information to be brought to, to the table as, in, as if there was a negotiation to say, well, if this side weighs out one, we decide this way. No, there's, it's, it's done. There's no sin left. No matter how many left, there's none that would have been able to take away that final judgment. It's complete. It was done. That's why he said on the cross, it is finished. It's over. That work of Christ has secured the final judgment. It has completed the work irregardless of us and based solely on his work. His work was perfect. It was perfectly satisfactory to the requirement of God to have a blameless sacrifice. So perfectly blameless that it covered our sin past, present, and future and secures for us the blessing and great joy of appearing standing upright and joyful before God the Father. I don't know how you can get any better than that. But it does. Joyful. We're joyful before his presence because of his joy for us. I mean, that our ability to have great joy in him now and one day in the presence of his glory is because of the great joy he has in me now through the blood of Christ. As a father proudly just takes his children into his presence and rejoices to be with him, we as adopted children will one day be proudly brought into the presence of the father and his joy is unspeakable and full of glory upon us and ours is simply in return. He delights that we would be in his presence. This is mind-blowing. 
We are completely undeserving to be in that presence. But holy, we will be holy that day because he is holy. We will not be filthy because he was blameless. We will not be sad, but with joy stand there. And that work of grace that will present us perfect in the presence of his perfection will be so complete, as Spurgeon puts us, puts it, he will make us so perfectly holy that we will have no lingering tendency to sin. Think about that. He's, he's going to make us so perfectly holy that we're going to have no even slightest lingering to sin. Spurgeon continues, Oh, the intense delight of that hour when the everlasting doors will be lifted up and we, being made fit for the inheritance, will dwell with the saints in light. Sin gone, Satan shut out, temptation passed forever, and ourselves blameless before God. This will be heaven indeed. Jude's confidence in the keeping power of God is infectious. But that's just verse 24. And it, it really, verse 24 pales in comparison to verse 25. And I can't understand verse 24. It's so great. For all the glorious truth in verse 24, it's simply an introduction to 25. This is the way, this is the way doxologies work. You proclaim praise initially but then you go to why we proclaim that praise. So we thank God that he is the creator and we enjoy this and we praise his creation. But eventually you turn to the fact that he is and the creator, able to do all of that work of creation. And that's exactly what happens here. He says, 24, this is the keeping able power of God's grace. But it's because of his greatness the able-keeping grace of God is only because of the greatness of God. If you want to put in your Bible, right there, 24, you could put grace, and 25, you need to put greatness. The able-keeping grace of God is empowered by the greatness of God. Jude declares the wonder of God's able and keeping grace but ultimately turns in verse 25 to why we are to wonder at that grace. And it's because of the greatness of God. Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice, he says, it's not just any God. This is the only God, the one and only triune God, the Father. He who has mighty has done a great thing. And as Jude turns in full praise to God, all those who are saved are to do this as well. We should marvel at his grace, but then turn to his greatness in praise. For those saved and have seen and tasted and experienced the work of God on our hearts, we cry out in unison with Hannah's praise in 1 Samuel over bringing life to the barren. This is our cry as well, 1 Samuel 2, 1 and 2. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in, sal in your salvation. There is none, there is on this only God, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you 
There is no rock like our God. Look in verse verse 4 of Jude. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. See, the grace of God proclaimed in verse 24 is only manifested because of the greatness of God, meaning they're, they're inextricably linked. They're unable to be torn apart. And this is what the false teacher tries to do in verse 4, is tear the grace of God away from the greatness of God. He perverts that grace by seeking to tear it from the greatness of God. He uses that grace as a license to sin rather than as a license to freedom. But as Christians, we realize that the grace of God is never, ever separate, separate from the greatness of God. It's never, it's, it's always linked, unable to be torn apart. Really, what, what is being proclaimed here is the fact that as real as false teachers are in this life, verse 3 all the way through 23 of Jude, as real as opposition is to the true faith from the church and from false teachers and from within, there is the reality of the almighty God of the universe who is all-powerful and glorious and majestic and has dominion and authority over all things. And the wonder of that is magnified when you realize that only God never slumbers, never sleeps, and loves you because of the risen Son seated at His right hand. This is why Psalm 29 were commanded, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Jude ascribes to God glory. Notice that, verse 25. Glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Let's go through those four here. Essentially, he, he is ascribing to God all in that credit, in that glory. He gets, God gets all the credit. He gets all the credit for, for everything. He alone is worthy to be praised. All the credit for the creation. All the credit for salvation. All the credit for our lives. All the credit is due unto Him. That's glory. But He doesn't just deserve all the credit. He deserves much more than that. He deserves majesty. Be glory and majesty. He's majestic. He is great and greatly to be praised. That is, that majesty, meaning he is, he is beautiful. Now listen, not, not even all of us, every person in this room, not even all the saved from, from the beginning of time to that last person saved before his return, not even all of us clothed in the righteousness of Christ before his presence with great joy, with new and unblemished bodies, will be as beautiful as he is. Glory and majesty. But that's not enough. Glory and majesty and dominion. Dominion meaning power. That is, God has utmost jurisdiction over all things. Psalm 8, you have given him, meaning us, 
Because he has the dominion first. He's given us dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens. The fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He is all powerful. He has power to bring life. And he has power to take life. He has power to raise up kings. He has power to set down kings. He has power to move mountains. He has power to heal the lame. And his power knows no limits. There is no limits whatsoever to his power. But that's not enough. Glory and majesty and dominion and authority. He is the supreme authority of all. Not only does he have power... With no limits, he has all authority to use that unlimited power and how he chooses. He has the choice when and how and where he exercises that power. And he always exercises that power for his glory and our good. All authority is subject to his authority. Jude, in ascribing to him the glory and majesty and dominion and authority of the only God, our Savior, as a closing doxology, as a cap to the book of Jude, really what he's doing is providing us one final glorious comparison to the false teacher. Quote, We see in the end the radiance of glory that stands in stark contrast to the depths of wickedness. Instead of dangerously hidden reefs in verse 12 of Jude, we see in the doxology the visible rock of refuge, the rock higher than ourselves, the stone carved from the mountain that smashes kingdoms in Daniel 2, the strong tower and safe refuge in Psalm 91, the rock upon which if we are shipwrecked, it is for our good and security. Continuing, instead of self-centered shepherds, we see the good shepherd who cares for the sheep at all times, who feeds the sheep with his own flesh, according to John 10. We see the glory of God, not in some thin, vaporous mist, but in the pillar of cloud leading the sons of God through the wilderness. We see the commander of the winds, the sender and stopper of them. Instead of fruitless trees, we see the true vine in whom there is life abundant, the vine who was once dead, but who is now risen up in glory and vindication according to John 15 instead of being swept along by the wild waves of the sea we see the one who walks upon the waves and calms the storms in Mark 6 instead of wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever in verse 13 of Jude we see the bright morning star the blazing sun of righteousness for whom the brightness of brightest glory has been reserved forever in Revelation 22 16 Unquote. Close quote. It's from the Gospel Transformation Bible. See, this is this is this doxology is really one last final analogy. But there's really only thing one left. There's only one thing left, and that is the one response to such truth of who this one and only God is. And that's found at the end of verse 25. That is, we give him glory and majesty, dominion and authority. We give him all praise and glory now and forever. 
We can't do it before all time. That's already happened. Before our time, before our time, before now, since the beginning of time, he's always been the pinnacle of praise. Luke 19, 38 through 40, as the procession of praise was moving into Jerusalem, Christ was on this donkey. They were waving palm branches and shouting joyfully, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Listen, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is amazing when, how Christ responds. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. We can't handle any of the stuff that's come before We can't handle any of the stuff that's in the forevermore. But we can handle the now. And it is now and forevermore the job of the redeemed to praise him. You see, having faith in the only God who saves means you have faith in the return of Christ, which means that our lives here on earth are to be intentionally lived under the eternal truth that we are made to reflect to all the world the authority and glory and dominion and majesty of God. We are to reflect in the here and now the realization and manifestation of the eternal truth of who God is and what he has designed us to do, namely, worship him. Which is what we're going to do forevermore. And we're enabled to do a better job of reflecting that eternal truth when we live as Abraham did and described in Hebrews 11.10. For he was looking forward. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. I stated the theme of 24 and 25. I'll repeat it again. The able-keeping grace of God by the greatness of God will present us before the throne with great joy. And that day when that happens, and no one knows that day when Christ will come, but he is coming. And we will, we we are, as we would live in the now and yet long for the forever, that that enables us to live this intentionality, this life marked by this inten- intentionality of reflecting the glory of who this God is as described in verses 24 and 25 to all the world that is around us. The forever is to come, the now is here. And let us delight to continually offer him the praise and glory he richly deserves as we look forward to that day when we will be in his perfect presence forever. Jude's message is one of warning to the church. But it's a warning encased in the eternal truth of God that enables us and keeps us and sanctifies us and gives us hope and confidence for the day when we shall be with him. That warning is encased in hope that we will be able to stand against the opposition to the faith. Whether it's from within our own hearts, whether it's from false teachers, whether it's from without, that 
warning Jude gives us is encased in hope. And we reply with an amen. Amen? Father, we Father, there's not enough words in the dictionary to describe this. What glory, Father, is yours and yours alone. We look for we look for that day, Father, we we long for the day when we will stand in that presence. No more tears. No more pain. No more sorrow. But Father, that's in the forever, and this is the now. And there's tears, pain, and sorrow. So we we fling ourselves upon that able keeping grace that you so richly poured out upon us. And we fling ourselves on that in the light of your greatness, pleading that throne, as Hebrew 4 talks about, Lord, pleading that throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace, Lord, that you might allow us to do a better job where we fail so often that we would do a better job of living life intentionally, magnifying, reflecting your greatness and glory. Because Father, when we stand that day in your presence, blameless with great joy, Father, my desire is to have as many crowns as possible to cast at your feet. Because there's no amount of crowns that's going to be worthy of you. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for keeping us. Thank you for the message of this book of Jude. May, Father, we be diligent. Diligent to guard this faith. Diligent to look out for false teaching from within this church, from within the Christian faith. May we be diligent to do so. But may we be diligent in the light of your greatness, trusting in that hope, trusting and having confidence in who you are and what you have done and what you have given to us. Father, may we be a church that is in constant awe of you. And as we've been learning in First Light, Father, about the, the task and the glorious opportunity of proclaiming the good news and evangelism. May we not shirk from that. And when we do, Lord, which we so often do, may we, may we once again look to your face and see the glory of this gospel of Jesus Christ. And be overwhelmed by that to the point that we just overflow to those that are around us. To you, Father, be all glory and honor, dominion and power. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.